guys, welcome to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. Today with us today, we have an amazing woman called Jessica Filippelli. She is going through a double PAO journey, and so we are privileged to have her here talking to us today. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thank you so much. <laughs> it's great to have you here with us, and thank you so much for being willing to share your journey and your story with us. It'll mean so much to more people than you can ever know. Um, so I just want to dive right in and just ask about when your diagnosis happened and sort of how you found out about your hip dysplasia, really. Well, I, um, I was diagnosed uh, September of last year. I had probably gone about nine or ten years just experiencing consistent hip pain I'd started having like popping and clicking in like high school and nobody really believed that anything was wrong with me um, because like I couldn't decide which leg to limp on so um, everybody's like oh yeah you know <laughs> so yeah it was a uh, kind of rough and I kind of just accepted you know this is just normal human variation I guess and uh, it wasn't until last year that um, my boyfriend kind of kind of pushed me to go to the doctor's office he's like you should not be in pain like this you should be able to walk <laughs> um, so I went in and after seeing I think four doctors who didn't know what was going on I was finally able to see a gentleman named uh, Dr. Gennario uh, and he's with UC Health and he kind of told me that I had hip dysplasia and referred me out to another doctor who could do the actual PAO. Brilliant. So that was in February of 2000, oh no, August 2018, I think, wasn't it your diagnosis? Yes, yes. So yeah. um, you had that diagnosis, you went through a whole room of doctors to try and get this diagnosis um, to happen. And mm -hmm. then when you finally got that diagnosis, what was, what was the discussion? What did they suggest first in terms of any treatment or intervention? Um, well, so the doctor that I was directly with, he tends to work with Dr. Maidan, the, the gentleman who does the PAO. So he initially recommended the PAO. He said, you know, I could fix the labrum, but because the bone is misshaped, the labrum is just going to tear again. So it would be kind of a, an unnecessary surgery. He said, um, we could do a hip replacement, but generally they like to do hip replacements on people who have um, more damage than, than I have. So more um, arthritis, more bony damage. And, uh, you know, I kind of figured that I'd have to do something drastic, I guess, after kind of being in pain for so long. I'd kind of come to the conclusion that it was going to be kind of a beast of a, a thing to go through. So they, they absolutely recommended the PAO and made me feel like it was the best option for me. Mm -hmm. Now I feel like I've seen a lot of people go through with hip replacement surgery and they seem to recover so much faster than PAOs. So I was a little jealous at first um, that I didn't do the hip replacement, but I know that they uh, don't last forever. So they, they definitely didn't want to do that for me because I'm under the age of 30. Yeah, absolutely. And big question, how did they decide which one they were going to go for first? Because obviously you've got this, <laughs> this double issue. So yeah. which, which was the deciding factor on whether to go for the left or right first? So my right is radiographically worse than my left, but my left, I kind of experienced more. It was more symptomatic for me. 
And when I went in initially, it was my left hip that had been bothering me. So they were like, well, that's the one that hurts you the most. So that's the one we're going to fix first. <laughs> they definitely listened to your feedback about how you were They did. Clinically, what was, like you said, radiographically relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know um, if anyone's been um, following your story on Instagram. Um, so Jessica, aka mermaid. <laughs> um, so I did see on your Instagram that you posted a picture of your CT scan, um, which was really cool to see this different style of imaging. Um, yeah. So much, most of the people that we see on Instagram are sort of sharing their x-rays with their screws and um, befores and after. But that CT scan was really cool. Um, and I saw you mentioned something about uh, 3D printing, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. is something I haven't seen on hyperspatial websites. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so how did you feel when you saw the when you saw the scans? Well, when I saw the scans, I think I saw the CT scan because they uploaded it online um, before you actually go in to see the doctor and do the follow-up. And I do, I do anthropology, so I've been trained to kind of be able to read x-rays and understand kind of what's going on in there. And I remember looking at it and I saw the CT scan. I was like, well, you know, my acetabulums look a little shallow, but maybe that's not a big deal. <laughs> that was my that was my exact response and reaction looking at the CT scans. And uh, sure enough, I am wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely an interesting, interesting thing you through your job. But um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, I didn't know whether from your story, your fractured ilium came before or during the surgery that you'd had. I thought that was, again, a really sort of different experience that we haven't heard much of before. Yeah. Um, so doctor, so when I went in for the surgery on the 12th of February, um, it was supposed to be, I think, a four to six hour surgery. And when Dr. Maydan kind of got in there, um, I, I think he was saying that he uses the area on my ilium, it's right above the acetabulum, is like a, a pressure point to be able to angle his reconstruction properly. And when he was doing that, it snapped the bone um, and broke during surgery. So the surgery <laughs> went like two or three hours longer. <laughs> um, I lost way more blood than they anticipated me losing. Uh, and it, it also kind of gave me some more restrictions after surgery. But yeah, it happened during the operation. <laughs> Okay, so were you aware of that when you when you came around again afterwards? Did they tell you sort of pretty quickly or? You know, I feel like they communicated with me all of that in the hospital, but when you're in the hospital and you just had, you know, you have the nerve block and you're on a ton of different drugs and you're sitting in a hospital bed, I know they told me about it, but it wasn't maybe until I left the hospital that I kind of understood what had happened. Um, I knew there was a fracture during surgery, but kind of not the implications of it until maybe discharge for me. So what I'm wondering is whether that had any implications for how quickly you were able to get up or whether that delayed any of your rehab at all. Yeah, I so I went into the surgery kind of just thinking that I'd be able to be like partially weight bearing and I'd be able to get back to it really quickly. And especially because the fracture, I couldn't put any weight down, um, completely non-weight bearing for six weeks. I couldn't sit up past an 85 degree angle um, at my waist, which was very difficult. Um, and then I couldn't externally rotate my leg or... Uh, 
they also recommended like not using my lower abdominal muscles for anything at all if I could avoid it. Wow. And yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think until we're told not to do that, we realize probably how much we use them um, yeah. for all the little things. Um, <laughs> are, th- are there any particular memories of things that you struggled to? to oh, gosh. Um, I feel like the hardest, I'm, I'm a very like independent person. I like doing my own thing, being by myself. And so I think it was hard to constantly need assistance for things like if I dropped something it was gone <laughs> there, there was no getting it back <laughs> um you know I couldn't yeah <laughs> we had one of those but yeah I don't you know it's if you leave it in another room you know you have to it's a whole ordeal to try and get something from another room so a lot of times you know if I don't get it I don't get it <laughs> um but yeah I think that the hardest thing with my restrictions was not being able to go up and down stairs or showering. Um, Dr. May Dan is a very, gosh, he's a very like focused person. You know, he's kind of an eccentric type of guy, I think. And when it comes to his surgeries, he's very much like, do not shower, do not go out, don't do anything that would jeopardize the surgery. And because of my fracture, he told me flat out that he wouldn't be able to fix it (laughs) if something happened. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was really scary, I think, um, during those first like six weeks when I had all the heavy restrictions. And I think that's like the biggest <laughs> memory is just being absolutely terrified that I was going to mess up the uh, surgery. So did you, did you have quite a lot of help from family, friends to come in and help you through those six weeks? I did. I did. I um, am really fortunate that I have an amazing Amazing friend group who kind of has been around throughout this journey for me. You know, they were around in high school when I first started experiencing the pain, and and they're really excited. I think that I'm able to take this step, and you know, I have a really good medical team who's who's taking care of me. And so they were by my side. My boyfriend, I I think I got really lucky on that one because he stayed home and he worked from home so that he could be home with me and take care of me like constantly because I think that first six weeks I I absolutely needed the the constant assistance for everything that's incredible that he was able to to do that and uh, he obviously yeah. wanted to do that to be yeah with you, so I'm sure that made a massive difference <laughs> <laughs> it's it's important it helps your uh mental health I think when you have somebody who not only helps like your physical health but also like reminds you why you're doing this and why it's important to take care of yourself and why you need to kind of take it slow. Absolutely. Um, so the next thing I really wanted to ask you about um, was your rehab strategies. Cause again, from what I can see, you <laughs> the perfect patient. You would be so welcome in my clinic. Like <laughs> I can see from your Instagram story is that we have trouble maybe slowing you down enough rather than getting yes. you through <laughs> around so it's dedicated motivated to getting back to being as strong and independent as possible um but I was just wondering if you could talk me a little bit through your rehab journey after the surgery and what exercises you had to do what stages you could do different things mm-hmm. after you had to start weight bearing at six weeks so once I started physical therapy I feel like my world changed it was like the sunlight opened up into into this dark <laughs> world that I was living in And I wasn't able to start until six weeks because um, my surgeon, 
he just very much wanted me to stay inside and kind of be safe. Um, and he doesn't generally want, if you're going to have a PAO through him, he wants you to do a physical therapist who is familiar with his um, uh, regiment, <clears throat> excuse me, for, for recovery. And so uh, once I was finally able to see my physical therapist, her name's Jenna, she is like the most amazing person. She really kind of fosters my sense of ability and kind of encourages me, I think, in ways that nobody else kind of is even able to encourage me because she like knows my musculature. She knows my body. She understands what's going on. And she herself also has hip dysplasia and had a PAO. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I, I was really lucky that I got such amazing, an amazing physical therapist. Um, but, you know, she started me off with very simple glute exercises. I think mm -hmm. we started with, we didn't start with hip flexor exercises, like major ones until I think maybe 10 weeks, mm -hmm. just because mine were like super, super tight, super resistant. But we definitely started slow sort of, I think, isometric exercises, um, getting my range of motion back was her primary goal. And it's something I'm still struggling with is my range of motion. But mm -hmm. that and she also has issues slowing me down. So it's kind of funny you said that. <laughs> She's told me many times I kind of need to just take it easy on myself, not go too crazy, do my exercises, but not do like a hundred other things. <laughs> um, and uh, I think once I started physical therapy, the progress was insane. I started being able to put weight down. I started using one crutch. And I think I started walking without crutches within three weeks of starting physical mm -hmm. therapy. So it was just this from going from no progression really at all to just this massive leap in inability. And she... um she's incredible and she uses uh, dry needling on me which initially I was not a fan of nobody likes to have needles stabbed into them but it is so amazing and helps like my muscles out so much and I have so much more range of motion and strength and everything after she does that so I think that was like the biggest thing for physical therapy it wasn't even just the exercises it was like the um, muscle manipulation and different massage work that she does and the trigger point therapy was all so, so important <laughs> during, during that recovery time. And I think that really helped me a lot is, of course, the exercises. You always have to do exercises um, to get your right, to get your muscles back. Like they atrophy when you're not doing anything. So, but I, I really think that her, um, her dedication to kind of my healing was the, the biggest, biggest thing for me um, during my physical therapy. Yeah, she really does. <laughs> And uh, some of the dry needling that you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, it seems like you were hooked up, was it electroacupuncture you were having? So you yeah. wires um, on your needles. Um, <laughs> yeah, electroacupuncture can be um, very, very effective. It just sort of oh, yeah. effect. Um But how did you find that? Because again, um, I'm not sure that anybody else that I've spoken to so far has had electroacupuncture. <laughs> Can you talk us through how that feels and the process that you went through? Well, I when I went in, she was doing massage on me, and um, she said that it, they're really a lot of the muscles are really deep. You know, you think of psoas is attached to the front of your spine; it's nowhere near the surface of your body. So, um, 
getting those muscles can be really challenging. And she just said, you know, we could try, try needling as long as you're not afraid of needles or anything. And I was like, you know, whatever. And I tell her all the time, whatever needs to be done, do it. Like it could be 20 needles. I'm going to complain about it later, but, but do it. And, uh, they're, um, I think they're hundred millimeter for the ones that she uses on my hip. I know that they have some that go in the neck and they're only 30 millimeter for you know obvious reasons um but so it's 100 millimeters and she kind of i call it tenderizing the muscle because <laughs> she puts the needle in and then you know kind of moves it around a little bit and kind of tries to find that trigger point and and it feels like um like a deep deep muscle cramp it doesn't necessarily hurt you know you don't really feel the needle going in because it's such a tiny tiny gauge they're so fine aren't they and especially <laughs> with those 10 centimeter ones that you have um, and we use those for glutes a lot as well mm-hmm. um, so i mean you again like you said they're so deep you have to have a longer needle um so we only we only really show them to people if they uh if they request to see them yeah. Um, if, uh, if they see that coming out and sometimes they change and <laughs> um, so, yeah it's uh, they're really fine you can sort of see how flimsy they can be because they are so so fine yes uh, but uh, yeah when they get that right spot that <laughs> a sort of deep achy bruisey type sensation exactly as deep is um, <laughs> definitely hitting the right spot and working <laughs> yeah yeah it's um it's it's definitely intense um and I know she has other patients come in who like come in at the tail end of my sort of session. And she's had me talk to them before about getting dry needling and everything. And I think it's scary at first, you know, because you see the length of those needles, like you said. But um, but even even with the um, uh, e-stim hooked up to it, it kind of it kind of just feels like a regular tens unit almost having you know the way that it causes the muscles to contract. Mm-hmm. I just you know, it's a little more intense though, because the needle's like directly in the muscle, not just on top of it. Cool. And so you've obviously been through, like I said, lots of rehab, you've been through massage, acupuncture, some cupping along the way as well. (laughs) Um, And how do you feel now? Are you sort of back to being active and doing the things that you want to be doing, or have you still got a little way to go? Um, I am back to doing pretty much everything I want to do. I don't have any pain in my left hip. It's not at all, not at all, (laughs) which is crazy. You know, I think that when you have chronic pain for so long, the idea of not being in pain is almost scary. I think that pain kind of becomes part of your identity in in some ways. So not having that, I think was like anxious at first. And I, I still have moments where I expect there to be pain. But, you know, I get normal, like, muscle soreness, and after a, a PT session, it can be a little, you know, I got to ice for a little while, but there's no, like, bone pain or anything like that anymore, and I, uh, I started, I feel like I'm more physically active now than I was before the surgery. Um, it's hard because I have dysplasia in my right hip as well, so... Um, Jenna would normally be having me starting to run, but like my right leg can't handle it. So I've kind of hit a little bit of a wall when it comes to recovery on my left side, just because my right side holds me back a bit. But I feel stronger than ever. And I feel like I can do more than I've ever been able to do. So I, I'm just, I'm just excited. And I know that the surgery is in November and I'm, I'm kind of like, kind of like, all right, like, let's, let's get it done. I want to get back to doing stuff. Like, <laughs> 
So does that give you more confidence then knowing that the surgery is coming up, knowing that, you know, the outcome and the way that you've been able to deal with this one so far, um, does that give you confidence for the next one coming up? It does. Yes. I think that I go, having already had one surgery, I think I'm more prepared. Like I kind of know what, what definitely worked and what didn't and what I need to like kind of stay, stay true to myself on, you know, there's certain things you always have to compromise for um, when you're depending on other people to take care of you. But I think that, excuse me, it's also important to have, you know, your own personal boundaries. And I think that I've been able to kind of be more comfortable with myself and what I want. And I think that that will make the next surgery a little bit easier. Um, that, and Jenna wants to start me at physical therapy at three weeks instead of at six weeks next time. And I think that will be really nice because, you know, the first six weeks I barely went out of the house. So being able to have that. A slightly different scenario that wasn't sort of quite typical of the surgery though with yeah. the, the fracture. So um, yeah. fingers crossed that there are <laughs> no alterations in the, in the, oh gosh. And, and everything just goes nice and smoothly for you. You can make that really I'm hoping so. <laughs> Um, so from the experience that you've had so far with the left one that you have done, mm-hmm. um, there are a few sort of tips and tricks that you would say really sort of helped you to cope that other people might be able to take forwards from this. So your coping mechanisms or sort of your, your crucial, crucial tips for getting through your PA. Um, you know, I really fell into journaling. I feel like I've always been really, really bad at journaling in the past. I just, I couldn't like stay focused. I couldn't do it every day. And then after I got diagnosed, I decided that I wanted to have a recovery journal. And so I went through before my surgery and I created like a bunch of journal pages and I became obsessed with bullet journaling. And uh, like my, I'm sorry. What is bullet journaling? I've not heard that. Term. Um, it's, it's pretty much basically just journaling. I think it just comes down to formatting. So instead of a journal with like lines in it, it just has like dotted a grid of dots. Okay. It just makes it easier to like draw and doodle. I mean, you can do it with a lined journal, which is what I did. <laughs> um, but uh, I just, I really liked that because I was able to go on Pinterest and it was always really colorful. And I think that after you have your surgery, you don't really want to do anything. Um, you know, especially not, not for yourself. I don't think, I think it was hard for me to want to do anything for myself beyond kind of what I was already doing. It's just, it's exhausting, you know? And so having a journal kind of already made up, all I had to do was go in and fill stuff out. That made it really easy for me to do it every day and also be able to maintain that habit. Um, I got like a bunch of sticker books. I got a bunch of like colored pencils and colored pens and like little scissors that cut shapes. And I just kind of poured myself into that artistic outlet. And doing that was so, so helpful during my recovery because in, you know, when you're sitting there not really doing anything, you don't see that much progress, but progress is happening. So I'd go in and I'd create like super easy goals for excuse me, super easy goals for me to maintain. And I'd track like my sleep, my pain levels, my energy levels. I'd track my mood. I'd track everything. And that way I could go back, you know, if I was feeling real upset at like week three, I could go back and look at week one and be like, oh my gosh, I wasn't even able to like go to the bathroom without assistance on week one. But at week three, I can. So 
you know, it, it's easier to see those smaller levels of progress, I think, when you put the time into um, recording them and making sure you remember them because, you know, you, you might only remember the pain or remember the fact that you couldn't sleep last night or anything and having something to open up and look at and say that says, you know, you are doing well, there is progress. I think that was just monumentally helpful for me. So it gave you a creative outlet, but something as well that you could look back on. See, it's sort of, it's like, it's like in physio, well, we sort of do objective scores so that we can mm -hmm. go back and see each week what your progress is. But that's sort of your version of being able to look back over the weeks and say, well, actually, yeah, I really struggled with that on week one, but now week six, I can't even remember that I struggled with that. <laughs> yeah. That memory there um, to, to look back on. So that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so the journaling side of things, did that develop? Because I know obviously you've got um, a bit of a medical history and some issues that you've had previous. Um, if you're happy to talk about that, we'll go into a little bit more detail. Um, but is journaling something that happened as a result of developing coping strategies with the cancer history that you've had? So um, the journaling really kind of just developed out of the hip dysplasia diagnosis. The, so I had hepatoblastoma, which is liver cancer. And I, my last surgery was when I was two. So I, I don't really remember much of the cancer at all. When you were a lot younger. Yeah, it was when I was a lot younger. Um, but I did, I did kind of chemotherapy has like long-term effects. And so I used to think that like chemotherapy had caused like a degenerative joint issue with my hips and that was the problem. Um, but no, the, the journaling was purely out of, out of the diagnosis of hip dysplasia. I kind of knew that it was going to be very difficult and I just, I was so scared and I just wanted to be prepared as much as possible. Um, and then I think, I think the history with cancer, I feel like I've always kind of had kind of around, like it's always been part of me. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that as a kid, I kept a journal and like would talk about uh, going to the doctor's office and getting like different procedures and everything. But I feel like after a certain age that tapered off and I stopped doing it. So it was kind of cool to come back to it and to kind of get back into doing that again. That's, that's amazing. And I think it's so important that everybody finds their own outlet um, mm -hmm. for, for coping strategies. But um, if anybody wants to have a look at Jessica's Instagram, some of the pictures of the journal, you post a pictures of your journal and what you write in them, and all your different creative outlets. <laughs> it's really wonderful to see and it makes me smile so much. It's so colourful and creative. Um, but yeah, there are lots of different methods out there of coping and it's just about finding the one that works for you, right? So, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, have a, little, have a little play with that. If you've not tried journaling before, maybe give it a go. Go out and buy yourself a new notebook. I love stationery shopping. So anytime oh, I can gosh, find a <laughs> or new colored pens, pencils, um, it's always a, a good, good day for me. So uh, it's, yeah. it's fun. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, that's that's amazing to hear your journey so far and obviously you've got this new one coming up in November which we yes. wish all the best of luck for. <laughs> Thank um, you. And uh, yeah, we'd love to continue to watch and follow your journey with you so um, yeah please keep in touch please go and follow Jessica on her 
journey and um, she posts like I said some amazing stuff and again she's got a really cute dog I love people <laughs> interviewing people with really cute dogs her dog Murphy um <laughs> joins in on some of our workouts sometimes so uh, yeah please he's great and support her in her journey so thanks very much Jessica and we will speak with you soon thank you so much <laughs>